Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Good evening, City Reach. How are you guys? Isn't it just awesome to hear the Word of God read like that? Kind of makes me a bit nervous to stand up and preach now. Just want that to go on. So uh, we call Abra the voice, and now you understand why. That was beautiful. Um, so if you don't know me, uh, my name is, is Graham, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Reach. I look after uh, families and children, and I'm married to my beautiful wife, Irina, and we have two kids, Elijah and Daniela. And one family tradition that we have is that every Friday night we watch a family movie. And that movie always seems to contain talking animals for some reason. Uh, The kids get to choose the movie, as you can tell. Uh, But there was a life for me before talking animals, and that was war movies. I used to love watching war movies. So a couple of weeks ago, we're sitting down to watch Elvin and the Chipmunks, The Squeakwill. And uh, I had this thought, oh my goodness, how far have we come from war movies to Elvin and the Chipmunks, the squeakwell. But um, I did have a favorite war movie, and my favorite war movie was one by the name of Saving Private Ryan. Who's seen Saving Private Ryan? Okay. For those of you who didn't raise your hand, I'm going to tell you the best piece of news. You need to go home and you need to watch Saving Private Ryan. You'll come back and thank me. It is an awesome movie. Uh, but for those of you who have seen it, how does the, the Saving Private Ryan start? You guys just told me you watched the movie. <laughs> Any ideas? Yes, yes. Okay, so Saving Private Ryan is one of these movies that actually starts with the end and then takes you back. All right, so it starts off with uh, Private Ryan. He's now an old man, and he's walking to the cemetery, and he's got his whole family behind him. He's got his wife and his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, and he's walking through the cemetery, and he gets closer and closer to the grave he's looking for. He walks between the graves, and finally he finds the one he's looking for, and he just collapses in front of this one grave, and then the camera zooms in on his face, And suddenly, you're taken back to the 6th of June, 1944, and you're in this intense battle scene. So tonight, we're all going to go back to the battlefield. And as you know, if you're in a battle, it's a place where you can get wounded and hurt. So as Abra so eloquently read for us, there is the psalm. It was written by a guy named Asaph. And Asaph found himself in a battle, and he almost got taken out. He says this, I almost got ruined, but he survived. And it's like he's telling us about this battle he was in, and he tells it with such complete honesty, it's incredible. And he starts like this. He starts with the end, and this is what he says. This is his conclusion. Verse 1, truly... God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is the end of the story. And now he tells us how he got there. 
You see, he knows this is true. God is good. He knows it's always been true. But he remembers a time when he didn't live as if this was true. And he says it like this in verse two. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Asaph is saying he was like a rock climber. And he's climbing this rope And the rope he's holding is called God is good. And he's trusting in the rope and he's going up and suddenly he looks around him and he loses confidence in this rope and he becomes panicky and he almost slips. He almost falls down and crashes. And you know the reason why is? Why he lost his confidence in the rope is because he looked around him and envy got hold of his heart. It says this in verse three. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, Asaph, he's a, he's a churchgoer. Uh, he's a man who follows God, but he looks around him at those who don't follow God and suddenly he compares his life to theirs and he goes like, this just doesn't make any sense. You know, mm, look at, look at their life, doesn't, doesn't that look good? You know, I kind of want what they've got. Look at their prosperity. And then suddenly, like as Abra read, this rage takes hold of him. And for the next 11 verses, he just goes into describing how he sees their life. He says, they're healthy. These guys are fat and sleek. They've got all this wealth. They're enjoying life. They seem to have this endless ease which he doesn't have. They don't seem to be concerned about anyone else. They live completely for themselves. He says the worst is they're proud. They wear pride as a necklace. They just kind of show it off for everyone to see. And then amongst that, they mock God. Here's Asaph, I'm trying, I'm pure of heart. I'm worshiping you, Lord. These people mock God. And they say things like, where's your God? He doesn't strike me down for the way I live. How can he know what I'm doing? And Asaph sees there's no fear of God before the eyes at all. And Asaph kind of looks at himself and he goes, God is good to those who are all pure in heart, but this doesn't make sense to me. My life's not so great. Well, these guys, they're not pure in heart at all. And their life looks pretty good. In fact, they increase in wealth. Their life gets better, it seems. And it finally, Asaph gets to the point where he says to himself, what's the point of trying to live for God? But now this would never happen to us, right? We would never think that. So um, I can remember... Living in Hong Kong, we lived on a small island and we'd have to take a ferry to get to the mainland where church was. So uh, Irina, my wife, she had moved to Adelaide early and she was setting up for us and I was still there with the two kids. And so we wake up for church. We had been out the night before at a church event. So I wake up, kids are grumpy. We're late for the ferry. I'm trying to get them going. It's not going so well. It's hot outside, and Hong Kong is hot and sweaty. So finally, I get them ready. I got my jeans on, and we're rushing down to the ferry, and I bump into this couple we know. And 
there he is. He's got his, he's wearing shorts, he's wearing sandals. Sorry, I can't call them thongs just yet. It's a little bit weird for me. But he's wearing sandals, shorts, he's got his hat on, sunglasses, inflatable Lalo. He's got two kids next to him, very happy. He's got an esky. He says, good morning, how are you? Where are you going? I'm going to church. Where are you going? I'm going to the beach. And then I'm like, oh, oh, great, have an awesome time, I've got to go. And inside my heart, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I hope it just suddenly pours with rain. I hope it's a lightning storm, your esky breaks, your sunglasses get lost. And then still, it doesn't happen, I get onto the ferry, I find my kids are irritating me even more now. We get to the other side, I look at the taxi queue, it seems longer than usual, Finally, we get a taxi. The taxi driver turns up the music. And that's it, right? I'm like, turn down the music. And all the time, it's because I'm thinking of this happy family at the beach. And I want to be that happy family. And the reason I behave like this is because the seed of envy had got into my heart. Now, for you... It might be you're single, right? Hey, I've been living great for the Lord, but I'm single, God. Man, I look around, everyone's getting married. Or maybe it's like, well, I haven't, I haven't got kids yet. Everyone else seems to have all these gorgeous little children, and I haven't got children yet. Or maybe it's a job, right? You work hard, you serve the Lord, you come to church, and you go, and, and Johnny over there, who doesn't give two hoots about God? Man, he's getting all these wonderful opportunities. He's getting promotions, and you just stuck there. Could even be ministry. Man, there's the church down the road. They don't even really preach the Bible, but they're growing, and we're not. Or maybe you stick your head over the fence, and you look at someone else's house, and you go, wow, that's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I found this, uh, it's a blog entry from uh, someone I know, and she's been through a lot, right? But this kind of sums it up, right? So this is her. She lives in Sydney. This is what she says. My beginning convo at the beach with him, him being God, went something like this. I don't flippin' understand what you're doing. I don't like what's going on. I want answers and clear, explicit instructions and directions. Why does it just keep getting more complex? Is there seriously any end to the challenges and setbacks? Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. I mean, it seems how much more can one person take? Two steps forward, ten steps back. I want some clarity ASAP. And this is where it comes, right? This is what she says. Why do other people seem to be so successful? Question mark, question mark, question mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Why is it so much easier for them, especially those that don't know you? Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. And that is exactly how Asaph is feeling. He's looking at his life and he's like going, it's just not fair. And then he says this, right? In vain I have kept my heart pure. And now we're really getting to the problem here. 
SF reveals something in his heart. And he's thinking, he's thinking, my righteousness deserves something. I do good, I deserve good, right? And let's be honest, that's how we think sometimes. Come on, God, I've been pretty good. I go to church, I do all the right things. I try and raise my family the right way. And Joe Bloggs over there, he really doesn't care about you. And look at his life. I deserve it. I deserve more. That's what he's thinking. But Asaph wrestles with this. He's, he's wrestling with all these thoughts. And he comes to this place. He goes, but, but I can't speak about it. I can't speak about it. He said, if I, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have portrayed the generation of your children. And he realizes that this thought, this doubt, that he's wrestling with, if he were to kind of bring it out and say, this is not true, that God is not good, he knows it will damage other people's faith. He knows it will damage and hurt other people's perception of God. You see, because that's how sin works. Sin begins with a thought. You don't wake up one day doing the most awful, sinful thing. It begins with a thought. And then that thought grows in your mind. And then you start enjoying the thought or indulging the thought. And then you begin to speak out that thought. Right? Maybe you begin to speak to others or you begin speaking to yourself, convincing yourself that this is not such a bad thing. And from there, it's a very short step till you actually do it. So you think it, you speak it, and then you do it. And Asaph realizes this. He realizes he's on the slippery slope. I've thought it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to lead others astray because I know where it goes. Guys, we are in this series called Battlefield because there is a battlefield in our minds. What we think here, very shortly it goes down into our hearts and it takes root. This is all too much. For Asaph, right? He's just, he says it's like, but when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It just wears me out, even just thinking about this. And he's troubled and he can't get his head around it. So he does the best thing he's done all psalm, right? He's grumbled, he's complained, and suddenly he does something good. He goes to church. It says, verse 16, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. The light suddenly comes on for Asaph, right? He gets perspective again. How many times I could tell you when I don't have perspective, I come to church and it's like the light goes on again. Okay, God, I see clearly again. Guys, when you are down, you are hurting, you are doubting, that is the very time you need to come to church and be with God's people. And sometimes it's the last thing we feel like. In those moments of doubt and hurt, we just want to stay away. That's the very time we are to come in to the sanctuary, be with God and be with his people. Why do we go to church? One of the reasons is to worship the Lord. Other than that, we come to church to get the right perspective on life, to see life 
through God's eyes, to understand it through what he's doing and through his timeline. So for me, that day, when I meet that family and finally I get to church and I'm thinking about being on the beach, but suddenly I come into the sanctuary and I'm with God's people and we begin worshiping, perspective changes. And it becomes like, God, you know what? I don't want to be worshiping created things my whole life. I'm in the perfect place I need to be. Here I stand, worshiping the creator of all things rather than created things. Just perspective, right? I want you to notice that nothing has changed in SF circumstances, right? Nothing's changed. It's still exactly the same, but he has a completely new view. He's looking at the very people he's envying, and suddenly he sees them completely differently. And you know what's really changed in his mind? It's because he's seen their end. He's seen their destiny, right? He suddenly sees in the end they lose everything. You see, he's, been at, he's just been envying their journey the whole time, and suddenly has this perspective that their journey ends in a terrible car crash. It's a wreck. The wicked will lose everything that they've ever enjoyed. They will lose family. They will lose money. They will lose friends. They will lose status. They will lose everything. And Asaph just looks at himself and with this new thing, he goes like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking to even, even look at that and compare it? I was senseless. It just doesn't make any sense to think that way, to envy the wicked. I want to show you a picture of someone, and you need to tell me who it is. Anyone know who she is? If you had been alive in the 80s, and into fashion, you would know who she is, right? It's a girl by the name of Gia Karanji. And she was the first supermodel. It is said of her that she put super into the phrase supermodel. At age 17, she got discovered. She didn't do anything. She didn't go looking for it. She was in a nightclub one night. Someone sees her and thinks, oh my goodness, you're gorgeous. Can you be a model? She gets discovered. Overnight, she's this incredible success. She gets asked to be shot by the world's most famous photographers. She's put on front of the most famous magazines in the world. She's flown around the world to have all these photo shoots done, meet all these celebrities. I mean, she has it all. Just look at her, guys. Like, what's not to envy? She's beautiful. She's got fame. She's got fortune, she's got influence, she's got connections. And Gia loved this. She just loved the lifestyle, living it up. And she loved it too much. And she started a love affair with heroin. She became an addict. And she kept taking heroin for a long time. And eventually, because of her behavior, some of the photographers said, no, we don't really want to work with you anymore. 
She would arrive at shoots not looking great, and they would send her back. And it became this downward spiral for her, down and down and down, until eventually she books herself into rehab, and she says, no, this is it, I'm going to put it right. She gets out of rehab, and she goes to a friend of hers, who was a world-famous photographer, and she said, please help me. You know, I'm, my career is falling apart. I'm losing my fame and my fortune. Please help me. And he says, all right, I'll help you out. I'm going to put you on the cover of Cosmopolitan. One more time, let's, let's do it. This will be the boost that your career needs. So he puts her on the cover of Cosmopolitan, and this is it. There she is. This is April 1982. And anyway, what you don't know, and you can see it from the photo, is she arrived at this photo shoot high on heroin. She had so many needle marks in her arms that the photographer had to get her to wear these long gloves and he got her to pose with her arms behind her so that no one would see the needle marks. That was the last cover she ever did. It was one of the last jobs she ever had. She went out, downward spiral, more drugs. Eventually, she turned to prostitution to fund her drug habit. They find her one day early in the morning. She's been beaten up, obviously, the night before, trying to buy drugs. They take her to hospital. And in hospital, they find out she's HIV positive. She's got full-blown AIDS. Gia never leaves hospital. She spends the next few months in bed getting sicker and sicker due to the drugs and the disease she caught because of the HIV. She begins to lose her looks. She becomes so sick that eventually she dies at the age of 26, in 1986, and she was famous because she was one of, she was the first really famous person to die of AIDS. At a funeral, there were only five people that attended. Her body and her face were so disfigured from the drugs and the disease that she had to have a closed casket. Not even a family could look at her at the funeral. It just doesn't make sense to envy someone like that. Now, be honest, guys. When you looked at the first photo and you heard her story, how did you feel? Just that little, like, yeah, that's, wow. And how do you feel now? How do you feel now knowing what her end was? It doesn't make any sense to envy that. And SF gets this. He goes, like, well, it just doesn't make any sense. In fact, I was like, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. In my thinking, I'm, I'm just thinking like an animal, right? Because an animal, really, all they want is instant gratification, right? They, they want it now. Just feed me and give me a warm place to sleep and I'm happy. Because that's what my thinking was. I'm just looking at the here and now and I'm not thinking about the end. But when the light changes for Asaph, he suddenly looks at his life and he goes, oh my goodness, we have all these blessings. All these blessings are mine. And he lists them off. He says, verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with me. You hold my right hand. I'm never alone. I'm never alone. 
Adelaide is one of the top 10 cities in the world to live. And it's beautiful, gorgeous city. But there's so much loneliness here. But as believers, we never need to feel that way. We're never alone. He's always with us. What a blessing. Second thing is he says, guidance. You guide me with your counsel. Right? The Lord determines our steps. He guides us. The wicked, man, the best they can do is kind of guess and make a plan and hope it works out. We have the Lord guiding our steps, leading us. And then he says this, and he goes, besides everything else, Lord, every blessing that you give me now, I've got eternity with you to look forward to. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Man, Asaph has just got it. He's got it. He sees it now, right? God is so good. And then he just launches into this triad. He says, like, actually, you're number one in heaven. You, you are number one for me. There's nothing. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. There's nothing that this life could give me that could compare to you, knowing you. And then he says, right, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Paul, writing to the Philippian church, says exactly the same thing to us. In Philippians 3.8, he says this. Indeed, I count everything, everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything. Everything. Man, SF looks at me and goes, even if everything else goes wrong, man, I can have a heart attack, I can get sick, I can lose everything, but it doesn't matter because God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. Though my heart, my flesh will fail. It doesn't bother me anymore because I know who He is. But he doesn't just stop there thinking about himself, reflecting on his own life. He turns back at the very people that he was envying. And he says, he looks at them and he says in verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. I wonder if you know what it means to to perish. Perish doesn't mean cease to exist. It means to become useless for what it was originally intended. Uh, we took a, it was middle of summer in Hong Kong, and we went to visit my family in South Africa, and we arrived in the middle of winter, and it was freezing. And uh, I remember that night we got there, it was cold, and I was looking for something to keep me warm, and uh, extra blankets or whatever, and I found an old hot water bottle. Do anyone remember those? Old hot water bottle. Yeah, my feet are going to be warm tonight. So I take the hot water bottle out, I boil the kettle, and I pour it in, and suddenly this water just drains out the bottom. Okay, my feet are going to be cold tonight. And I looked, and the bottom of the material had perished. They'd perished. Was it still a hot water bottle? Yes, but it had become useless for what it originally was created for. We are created to have a relationship with God, to know Him and enjoy Him and walk with Him. 
And Asaph looks at these people and goes, no, you're going to perish. You're going to, be, you're going to miss this. You're going to miss what you were created for. And he says, surely for me, for me, it is good to be with God. And it doesn't just, he doesn't just leave it there. He sees suddenly his own life, but he doesn't leave it there. He turns to evangelism and he says, I will tell of your deeds. I will tell of your deeds. Guys, what is the greatest thing that God has done for you? The greatest thing that God has ever done for us is that he looked down at us. He looked down at the pit that we were in of dirt and grime and filth and he said, I care enough that I'm gonna do something about it and he sent his son while we were still in our filth and our dirt and he took us and he said, I will die for you. I will absorb all that sin, all that dirt, all that filth. I'll take it on myself. And not only that, I will give you my righteousness, my purity, my cleanliness will become yours. That you might be able to live free from the power of sin and death. Guys, that's the greatest thing that he's ever done for us. And suddenly Asaph sees this and he goes, I need to tell people about God's deeds. I need to tell people what he's done. I mean, what a change, right? What a change in the man. He's gone from seeing these people like, oh, I really want what they've got, to suddenly these guys need the life I have. Just sees people differently. I honestly believe that our evangelism, our care about the people who don't know the Lord would be far more effective if we realized a few things. And this is so true of myself. I think the first thing that would be a lot more effective is if we stopped envying the lost. If we stopped envying the lost. Another one is if we realized their true end and we realize our true end. A life and an eternity with God to enjoy Him forever or eternity without Him. And I think it would be a lot more effective if we realized what we've got in Christ. You see, if you don't believe that your relationship with Jesus Christ is the most precious, most beautiful thing above all else, anything else that this life can offer, why would you ever want to tell anyone else about him? If that is not true for you, if this isn't your greatest treasure, why would you ever be compelled to tell anyone else about him? So guys, I say with Ephesus, let's declare God is good. He is good. He is our portion. He's our number one. He's ours and we're his. You know, because of this beautiful thing called the gospel, we will declare his deeds to those who don't know about him. Because this is not some crazy person on stage telling you, go out and tell more people about Jesus. This is about our own hearts, where we see people so differently that our greatest desire becomes that they would know the Lord, that they would come to faith and enjoy Him 
and not have to perish. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says this. He goes, for Christ's love compels us. It compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I think one of the primary reasons we envy, that envy grips our hearts, is because we are living for ourselves. And when we do that, we want what we want. But when that finishes and we live for Christ, what changes is it's not what I want anymore. Our greatest desire is what He wants. And what He wants is people to know Him and enjoy Him. And that becomes our greatest desire as well. Guys, as we close and we come to worship, I really want this to be a time where we take our eyes off our lives and we begin to focus on who he is, what he's done, and all those things that bother you and prick you during the day. You know what? In light of him, they become absolutely so small and insignificant in your life because you realize what you have in Christ. And Christ is enough. He is enough. Guys, all of us, I'm standing up here speaking to myself, have places in our lives where we have envy. Envy can grab hold of us. And I want you to bring that before the cross tonight. What is it in your heart that you have where it's just getting hold of? Bring that to Jesus and lay it before him and look at him. And when you do, I guarantee you it's going to become so small Will you stand with me? I'll just ask you musicians to come forward. I'd like to pray with you very quickly. Father, I thank you for Asaph's honesty, his realness. I realize that he fought a battle, Lord God. Lord, I pray all of us would come to a place of victory, not our own victory, but we would celebrate in the victory you won, the victory that frees us from the power of sin, the sin of envy, and of death, Lord God. We have every reason to rejoice in this place tonight because we have untold blessings in you. Father, I pray forgive me and forgive us, Lord God, where we look around and we just want what others have and we are not content and satisfied with what you've already given us. Lord, help us to enjoy you this week and rejoice in you. Jesus, you are enough. You are enough.